You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. In the last lecture, we tried to see something about our personal identity, what a human person is. And I pointed out that what is the real clue to our identity as human is our intelligence, our ability to see the essential and the irrelevant. And from that follows our freedom, the freedom of our will to make a choice. But these things cannot operate in us without the body, without the internal senses in the brain and the external senses in our eyes and ears, sense of touch. And our feelings, which are also in our body and which make themselves known to our imagination and our internal senses through the body, are necessary to move our will to choose something as desirable or undesirable. We pass then from this theoretical or pure science of the human person, keeping in mind that there is something we have not fully looked at, and that is the spiritual aspect of the human person, which science can establish as a fact, but cannot fully understand or examine. We must pass on from that pure or theoretical science to practical knowledge. And first of all, to the practical knowledge of how we make life choices. How, as intelligent and free beings, we choose to do this rather than that, how we seek happiness. The practical is always rooted in the theoretical. A doctor is a very practical person. All of his thinking has to do with healing somebody, helping them to get over their physical ills. And yet, medical education requires extensive study of biology and also even of physics and chemistry because without these the human body cannot be understood and remedies for its diseases cannot be found. Analogously, in our life choices we have ethics and for the community politics, practical disciplines that deal with how we live our lives, how we make choices, so that our lives have meaning and fulfillment. Intelligence shows us goals. And if we understand our human identity, our human person, we see that some goals are fixed in our human nature. We can't change them. We can't do without food. We can't do without some protection from the weather. 
we can't do without reproduction, without sex that keeps our human race going and raises children from infancy to maturity. We can't do without a larger society because none of us have all the things we need for our life. We have to get them through cooperation with others. And furthermore, we can't even enjoy our life very well without companionship of others. And finally, we need the truth, meaning, understanding. Since we are above all intelligent beings, the highest truth that we need to seek and the good that is the key to all other goods is knowledge and understanding. Only when we have knowledge and understanding can we know ourselves, know what we need, find the ways to achieve it, and come to realize that our happiness lies especially in the knowledge of other persons, to know others and to love them, and above all, to know and love God who created us. To have a right idea about that, of the goals of life, their relative importance, their hierarchy of importance, requires a practical science that we call ethics. And as regards the community, which we call politics. If we look at the Greek philosophers, we see that they devoted a great deal of their time. And in fact, some of the schools of philosophy were devoted almost exclusively to ethical questions because this touches the human being so closely. And of course, in theology, we need not only to know about God, but our way to God, how we are to live so that we will come to communion with our fellow creatures and with their maker. Ethics, therefore, is very close to the study of theology. And one very important part of theology is moral theology, which happens to be the field that I have worked in most in recent years, the field of moral theology, how we ought to live our lives. The biggest mistake that is made with regard to ethics, and I'm afraid it's often in the way we teach people right and wrong, is to think right and wrong, morality, as a question of rules, commandments, do this, don't do that. Sometimes we're led into that because in the Old Testament, the central thing in the Old Testament is the Pentateuch, the Torah or instruction, and central to that are the Ten Commandments. Now, don't get me wrong. The commandments and the rules of life are very important. They express on the natural level the experience of the human race the mistakes it's made, the triumphs that it has had. And on the supernatural level, the commandments are God's guidance of us by which he wants to lead us 
to happiness with Him. We need to know those rules. We need to live by them. However, that's not all there is to morality. Besides keeping the rules, we have to keep them for the right reasons, the right motivations. The prophets of the Old Testament came along and told people, God is tired of your keeping the commandments and carrying out the sacrifices. It doesn't mean much if they're not done out of love of God and neighbor. And that is the truth of the New Testament. The Sermon on the Mount, in which Jesus goes over the Ten Commandments, his emphasis is that we must also keep the commandments for the right reasons, the right motives. That means that we must understand why these rules exist. Sometimes we just have to keep them without understanding them. But that's not the best way. The best way is to see why these commandments tell us the truth about human life. If we don't see that, we will apply the rules in a mechanical way that does not fit the changing circumstances and situations in which we have to act. The events of our life have a general pattern, but things come up every day that are different and unique. And we have to be able to meet those special situations. We can't do that if we don't understand the reasons, the wisdom back of the commandments. The commandments of God and the requirements of nature. Only when we have a good understanding will we be able to do the right thing. And the better our understanding, the more accurate our judgment. Now, today we talk a lot about freedom. And I've said that this is characteristic of the human being. Because we're intelligent, we are free. But what does freedom mean? Freedom means the power of choice. We don't choose precisely the end. The ends of our life are given. We have to eat. What we choose is our diet. We can't choose whether to have friends or not have friends. We need friends. We need society. That's not the point of choice. The point of choice is which friends to have and which society to live in. What community should we seek? Freedom is about choice of means to ends. And that's what ethics is about. Ethics is, first of all, about an intelligent choice of means to ends. Now, there are some means that will never bring us to our ends. Some actions are self-destructive, destructive of ourself, destructive of the community in which we need to live. And so there are some things that are intrinsically wrong. In no circumstance can they be done.
That question came up in just recent years. There was a school of thought that arose after Vatican II called proportionalism. And it was finally condemned by the encyclical of Pope John Paul II called The Splendor of Truth. And he condemned it because in their system, no moral rule is without exception. No moral rule is without exception for a proportionalist. But some things are always wrong. They never will get us to our goal. You can't get to New York by trying to swim. You just will not arrive there. I suppose if you got into the Great Lakes, you might finally make it to New York, but it's not a very good way to do it. And there are some ways that will never get you where you're going. So don't try. Similarly, in moral life, some actions are always wrong. They will never get you to happiness. They will destroy you. A simple example is the taking of drugs to the point of addiction. If you take drugs and become addicted, it is certain to ruin your life. It can never be justified. Rape can never be justified because the purpose of our sexuality is, first of all, to express love to a person of the opposite sex. Personal love. Love cannot be expressed by violence and going against the will of the other. Lies can never be right. I know we all tell what we call white lies, but lies are always wrong because they always weaken human trust, and human trust is essential for human life. Now, ethics will teach us that not everything that at first sight seems a lie, a joke might be thought of by some people as a lie. They're too literal-minded. Some people might think that the first chapter of Genesis is a lie because it says the world was created in six days. Well, I've already explained about the liberal arts. If you know how to interpret human speech, you know how to take a particular thing. You know to take a joke as a joke. You know to take a symbol, symbolic language as symbolic language. But you'll finally come down to the question of literal statements. And when it's a question of making a literal statement, any lie, even a little one, is going to lessen trust. And so it's not right. It may not be terribly serious, but it was a bad idea. And so it is in our life. We have to, first of all, see clearly what is intrinsically wrong, but can never serve a good human life, we must never do that. But then there is a great area in which freedom is possible. And there, our knowledge of human nature will enable us to make good and profitable choices, choices that are constructive rather than destructive. This goes for personal life, and in personal life, therefore, we need the virtue of prudence, which is trained 
ability to think about moral decisions. By a virtue is meant a skill, and we have to acquire the skill by experience and practice, a skill in solving a particular kind of problem. A mathematician has a skill in solving mathematical problems. And that would be called in ancient language a virtue, an intellectual virtue. The skill in making moral choices is called prudence. We can't expect young people to have that. They don't have enough experience of life. But they ought to be moving toward prudence so that they have the commandments that taught them by their parents that have started them on the right way. And then as mature people, they acquire prudence that helps them to make realistic and good choices toward happiness and the fulfillment of human nature. But besides prudence, we also need four other types of virtue. One of these is justice. Justice is the virtue by which we think not only of our own needs, but other people's needs. And it's essential because we need society. We can't live in society unless there is a just order. And that means we have to think of other people's rights. That's not so easy to do. We can all think of our own needs, but to think of the other guy's needs is not so easy. And to do that consistently, that's what a virtue gives you, a skill gives you, is not to act rightly on this occasion or that occasion, but to consistently make good decisions. So we need justice, the sense of justice, the virtue of justice, consistently to respect other people's rights. Now, with those two virtues, prudence, the think carefully about what we're going to do, whether we're choosing a good means or a bad means, and justice, which enables us to think about other people's rights, we also need something to control our own impulses. We have basic biological drives, and those drives are necessary to our life. They're not bad, they're necessary and good but they can get out of hand. One of these is the drive of aggression, the fighting sense, the ability to face obstacles and to overcome them, to be courageous, and in some situations to be patient and last it out until we can do the right thing. We call that the virtue of fortitude. It's a great virtue, to be able to meet the troubles of life and yet control our aggressive appetites that tend to bring us to violence and revenge and get out of hand. When we seek violence and revenge, we destroy not only others and the social order, but we destroy ourselves. Then there is a desire for pleasure. Physical pleasure has been given us by God to facilitate our certain necessary physical functions. If eating was a chore, 
I'm afraid we would never eat enough. You have to have some pleasure in eating in order to get through a meal, which is, after all, a somewhat messy operation. But the pleasure of the meal makes it easy, and it's humanized because it contributes to our social life. We enjoy the meal with other people, and the conversation is good, and wine is flowing, and it's a good party. Physical pleasure helps us with that. The same thing is true with regard to sexual pleasure. How many people would go to the trouble, and what great trouble it is, to have children and to raise them if there was not also the pleasure of sex? Those have been given by God to enable people to carry out basic and necessary biological functions. But they can be destructive. When pleasure facilitates, it's good. When it becomes an end in itself, it is disastrous. The person who eats too much becomes a glutton, destroys their health. The person who takes drugs for the enjoyment of effects, drinks for the pleasure of drunkenness, it ruins their life. And the same thing is true of sexuality. An indulgence in sexuality not controlled by our intelligence and our understanding of why God made us sexual can be utterly destructive of human life and of human society. Early in Greek literature, we have the great epic of the Iliad. Well, the Iliad is about the destruction that came on the city of Troy by reason of the sexual appetites of one of its citizens, Paris, who carried away the wife of another man. And also the jealousy between Agamemnon and Achilles over a woman. Sex can be utterly destructive of life when it was intended to make life beautiful and fertile. Those are the basic problems of life that we need to think about in ethics. And that ethics help us to think about Christian life. There's also the question of politics. That has two levels. The level of the family, because the family is the basic institution of society, and the level of the state. It's been my experience that students of theology are preparing for the ministry as priests often have very little understanding of politics. And that's a great mistake. There's no point in talking about justice if you don't understand politics, how justice can be brought about in a society. And that's not so easy to figure out or understand. We all need to think reflectively about politics. The basic point in this is there are two extremes. There's the extreme in which government becomes something tyrannical, is run for the interest of a particular group. The philosopher Hobbes tried to construct politics on the idea that since we all fight each other and hate each other, the only way to maintain social order is to put a dictator in charge of everything, and he will keep us from killing each other out of his own interest. For the sake of his own power, he will keep us from destroying each other. 
Well, that's a very pessimistic view of human society indeed. But it's one extreme in political thinking. Another extreme is the thinking of anarchists. Now, we often think of anarchists as people who throw bombs, but that's not what anarchism is. Anarchism is the idea that we can run society by consensus. All we need to do is get together and talk over things, and finally we will all come to an agreement and we won't have to obey anybody. Everybody will agree on what to do. That also is a utopian and absurd notion. When it comes to deciding what to do, we're free. And our intelligence tells us there are many ways to do something, each with its advantages and its disadvantages. We can't expect, even through dialogue, to come to consensus by discussion. No matter how long the discussion goes on, and how good the will of the discussants. Eventually, there has to be some kind of authority. Aristotle suggests to us that the best authority is one which is a republic, like the United States, which combines a central authority, a group of experts, presumably our Congress, and the vote of the people. When we balance these different factors in society, we can have a just, non-violent, and orderly regime. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.